Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Father, we, we ask once again that we may never lose the wonder of who you are. That we may never lose the wonder of your great love, the magnitude of your love for us. That you being the creator of all things, the firstborn of creation, the ones who, who set the stars in the sky, that you would descend down from heaven to save a wretch like me. Lord, we ask that we will never lose the wonder, the awe of your great love for us. Father, we ask for a greater level of your presence in this place. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing. Lord, we, are so, we, we, we appreciate it. We are so grateful. We are so thankful that you will grace us with your presence. But Lord, we, we humbly ask for more. We ask for a greater measure. Lord, we are not satisfied with where we are at. Lord, we want more of you. And Lord, we ask for, for a day to come, God, where, where you know, where, I, I love the pulpit ministry, ladies and gentlemen, but, but I, I'm hungry and zealous for the day where I, I, I just need to come up, preach a five-minute sermon, and then the presence of God falls. During the days of revival, people would come out and just say, come Holy Spirit, and bodies would be stuck on the floor because of the presence of God. Someone just needs to come out and say the name Jesus and people will weep uncontrollably at the awe of, of this great love. Lord, we ask for the day to come in the city, God, that at the mention of your name, at the mention of the name above all names, that your glory will fall. Amen. That your glory will fall. Amen. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, um, as Pastor Daniel said, no, I, I preached last week. How many of you were there for that? Okay, wait, never mind. Screw. How many of you weren't there for that? Okay, let me do a, a recap. Um, I preached a message I called an unstoppable force. You know, I, um, I was doing a, a study on the book of Acts, and one of the things I realized was that the, the, the early church was unstoppable. They, they encountered various trials, various tribulations. You know, there, there was sin that entered into the early church, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, people were killed. People were martyred. Um, you know, people were arrested. But it did not stop the early church. They didn't just survive. They thrived. Amen? They, they, they didn't just sustain the work. They advanced the work. Amen? And, and the truth is, no, it seems that, that nothing could derail the early church. Nothing could stop them. They were unstoppable. Amen? And, and if we look at where the church is today, and, and not, not being condemning, not being negative, but, but we, we have to reflect every now and then. Amen? And, and if we think about where we are at as a church today, we are fairly stoppable. Yes? You know, like, truth be told, if I wasn't preaching today, I would have had a thought come to my mind, but I was driving down and I saw the road closure and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to like turn down five streets to get to church instead of going straight down. And, and I was like, oh man, this is inconvenient. <laughs> How many of you had a thought come to come and oh, this is inconvenient? <laughs> I mean, that's the truth, amen? Can, can we admit it? Yeah? And we're fairly stoppable. And, and one of the things that, that 
uh, we're, we're going to endeavor to do this morning is we're going to study what made the early church unstoppable. What, what did they have that today we don't or seemingly, seemingly don't have? And last week we came to a conclusion that all of us, to some degree, have embraced a certain level of lukewarmness. That we have gone cold in certain aspects of our faith. That we, we have lost passion and fire regarding some of the things of God. And, and that was one, one of the things that, that, that dis- distinguished the early church. They were on fire, passionate, zealous, sold out for the kingdom of God. And we need to endeavor, journey on this process of maturity to that place. Amen? Amen? And, and this is the journey that we're going on as, as a church together, not just this church, but the church globally, that we are on this process of maturity to come to a place of saying, I will give my all for Jesus. I will give my all for His kingdom. Amen? This is church. Amen? And this morning we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, turn it there. These are my jokes. I will save them for next week. Uh, No, I said a week. You can use them. Acts chapter 2. Are you ready? (laughs) Uh, We'll just share one. Escalators don't break down. They just turn into stairs. You know? Okay. Moving on. (laughs) Acts chapter 2. Are you ready? Are you there? Amen. Let's read it together. They continued steadfastly. This is talking about the early church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. You know, the word apostle is actually a really interesting word. It is not a Hebrew word, okay? The word apostle is actually a Roman word. It was the, the, the title, the rank almost, that was given to a Roman general. And this Roman general had one task. He had to go into a city that was conquered and, and, and defeated, the, the king defeated, that was conquered by Caesar's army. And his job, this Roman general, was to go into that city and make everything look like Rome. Okay, so the language, the education system, the streets, the the color, the decor, he had to make everything look like Rome. Why? Because Caesar had this desire to feel like home wherever he went. When he went to all his conquered cities, he wanted to feel like home. And this was the job of an apostle, to make a city look like home. And so when Jesus commissioned the 12 apostles, and commissioned the church to do the apostolic ministry, the ministry that's upon you and me is to go into places and make those places look like home. And that's why in the apostolic prayer it prays that let what is in heaven be on earth. That's our ministry. That's the church. Okay? So this is the apostles' doctrine. Okay? Heaven, earth. Amen? And fellowship. The word fellowship is actually the word, Greek word, kononia. Okay? And, and there, there's like several translations and meaning for it, but the, the, my favorite um, uh, description of the word kononia is the exchange of life. Fellowship is so much more than prata and limte and gopi. Amen? Fellowship is the exchange of life. It's spiritual. There, there is this uh, vitality that happens when two believers get together. Anything can happen. 
It, it stirs up spiritual hunger. It stirs up spiritual growth. That is fellowship. That is kononia. Okay? In the breaking of bread and in press. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Love that. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Many people have problems with signs and wonders today in the church. Not this church, but other, other places. They, they, they think, oh, you emphasize so much on healing, on signs and wonders, but what about God? You can't emphasize the hand of God and, not emphasize, and, and, and you de-emphasize the face of God. There's an exit sign right there, okay? How many of you will attempt to crawl through the exit sign later? No. What does the sign point to? It points to the door. The sign always points to a greater reality. And that is why, as a church, we need to be passionate about pursuing signs and wonders and miracles because these things, these manifestations of the Spirit, the glory, they are signs that point to the greater reality. And that is the door. Who is that door? It's Jesus. Amen? Haven't even started preaching my sermon yet? <laughs> but I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses. And now all who believe were together and, held, and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. I think this is like the crescendo of the verse, you know. And they sold all their possessions and goods and divided them all as anyone had need. It's, it's almost like, you know, scholars say that, 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 that the first few points that, that I preached, so the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, signs and wonders, accumulates into this expression. Now all who believe had all these things in common and they sold their possessions and goods and they gave to all who had need. This is church. This is church. Uh, if, you, if you have your Bibles, you know that, that, that top header for some of you, it's a vital church growth. But in, in some of your Bibles, it, it, I, I love this heading a lot more. It says, the community emerges. This is how the Bible describes community. These things. Community is not just a fun idea. It's not just a suggestion. It is the will of God. Amen? Amen. Come on. Amen? That's why we gather or not. You will stay at home and watch streaming. But community is the will of God. Said they sold their possessions and goods, divided them all among all as anyone had need. You know, I've seen a, 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 a foretaste of this you know, in, in the church I was in in the U.S. Um, every uh, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and Christmas, the, the pastor will get up and do something really remarkable. On Mother's Day, he'll get all single mothers to stand up, and then he'll say, great, I know many of you are expecting uh, me to say, go to them, pray for them, bless them. I love that. You know, give them a prophetic word, but I'd much rather you give them cash. And so these single mothers would, would, would stand up expecting to just get a prayer and then sit back down, but people will walk up with them, empty out their wallets and give them cash. And, and I've never seen a mother sit down without weeping. Never. And he'll do the same on Father's Day for single fathers, and he'll do the same on Christmas for families who are struggling to have Christmas. I've seen a foretaste of that. Amazing. But, but that is not at the level of the ex-church. They sold all and gave to them as anyone had need. See, this is not like communist. No. This is not like we, we pull our resources together and everyone gets an equal percentage. How many of you follow me? 
it's, it's not that, no. It's not like everyone was accorded to them what they deserve. No. It says that they give to all as anyone had need. They professed their need. And the question is, you know, the observation is, or I'd rather say that, this is not common in churches today. This is not common in churches. If, 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 you know, if anyone had, had need here, chances are most of us wouldn't even know about it. Because society has discipled us and taught us this one principle, that need equals weakness. Need equals weakness. And I cannot show my need because I might appear weak and not strong. How many of you are following me on that? You have to understand that, that you were all created with needs. <gasps> we were all created needs. Okay? Genesis 2. Okay? God created man. Wonderful. Wonderful man. Did all these things and then he created man. And, and God, being God, you know, the one that we just prayed to, the one we just heard about, that is bigger than the heavens. God was in the garden with Adam. And he turned to Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. Let me create you a helper. God being all-powerful, being able to, to meet almost every need and desire, created Adam with a certain set of needs that God couldn't meet. That he needed to create someone to meet that need. How many of you are following me on that? We were all created with needs. It's part of our design. And what the world calls imperfect, what the world calls not good, needs, weakness, God calls good. He created man and called him good. And then he provided him a helper. Following me on that? Come on. I think I'm preaching better than you're responding. Someone needs to communicate the joy of the Lord to your Faces. Your spirit needs to communicate it to your... <laughs> okay. Just last week, uh, this week actually, we, uh, I, I think all of us on Facebook, you know, we, we've just heard uh, the news of a high-profile Christian worship leader uh, who fell into sin five years ago. Uh, has been working through trying to restore his marriage with his wife and uh, they just filed for a divorce. Um, this, this week. Okay? And we, we all sing his songs, you know, and, and he's part of a, a really, really big church. Really, really big church. You know, very resourceful church. Not just financially, but with people. Very resourceful. And it, it makes me wonder, it makes me come to a question whether if he were to come up earlier on when his marriage was having troubles, if he were to come up earlier on when he was facing temptation, if he were to come up earlier on and say, I have needs and I need help, could this whole thing be avoided? So many times though, we have allowed this fear of appearing weak hinder us and stop us from getting certain needs met. And then we just keep on struggling and we just keep on struggling and just keep on struggling. Since it, it, this is how most people think, I'm going to spell it out for you. It, it goes, I have a need. I don't want to appear weak. Oh, sorry, let me balik. I have a need. If I get it met, okay, or if I ask for help, I look weak. 
If I look weak, I'm not strong. And if I'm not strong, I'm not worthy of love and belonging. That's how most people think. If I don't look strong, if I don't look well put together, if I don't look like I have all things, all these things well put together, I'm not worthy of love, belonging, position, community. Amen? That's how, the, that's, that's how we're trained to think. And we have to understand that this thing, X2, has a context to it. Okay? The context is such... Um, I, I, I once read a book about Jewish culture and the Jewish rabbi who wrote the book said this. He said, poverty and death are the same thing because in both is the absence of options. Poverty and death to a Jewish person is the same thing. It's, it's, it's the absence of options. And to a Jewish person, the management of resources is an extension of their spirituality. The management of resources is an extension of their walk with God. If we look at Luke 15, right, the sin of the prodigal son was not that he asked for his inheritance. His sin was he squandered it. He wasted the resources of his father and of the village. So to a Jewish person, mismanagement of resources that leads to need is tantamount to sin. And so look at that. They, they went out and said, I have need. This is radical because they broke through shame. They broke through that need to appear fully well put together. They broke through that point of not uh, desiring to confess their weakness and their need. They broke through it. And they confessed it. They broke through shame. And I think, and, and, I, I, and I really believe that this is it. That one of the characteristics of the early church, what makes them powerful, what makes them effective is that they were shameless. Puyaolian. <laughs> they were shameless. And this is the title for this week's sermon, An Unstoppable Force, A Shameless Church. Say that with me. I want to be a shameless church. Feels good. <laughs> I want to come up with a really safe topic, but I was feeling edgy this, this week. <laughs> I want to define shame. Shame is this. Shame is the intensely painful feeling that because of my mistake, I'm unworthy of love and belonging. That is what shame is. It's a feeling, it's intense, that because of what I did, I'm unworthy of love, I'm unworthy of belonging. That is shame. That is shame. In many ways today, today society is... is is riddled with shame and to some extent fueled by shame. Education system today, you know, uh, like, like my parents, you know, they're well-meaning, well-loving, they were like, okay, if you've been through this, you will understand what I'm saying. I went to school with my cousin. Okay, how many of you went to school with a family member? I went to school with my cousin and my cousin was at, in the same level as me and in the same class. And my cousin was a lot smarter than I was. So, you know, what, what's about to happen? So every time I come back and report cards, it's like, oh, how much did she, she get? And I'm like, oh, she got this. Huh. Hmm. Why don't you, why, why do you get so low? Why don't you get? That, how many of you, like, roughly know what I'm saying? Like, oh, your mother will compare you to your friends or your neighbors. Yes? Yes? Comparison, you know, it's, it's a form of shame. 
It says that if you are not better than or you are not equal to than this person, you are making a mistake. And, and then you're trained to think that way. Shame. That because I, I made a mistake, because I, I'm seemingly unequal or not as valuable as this person, I'm then unworthy of love and belonging. Because I seem weaker than this person and not as strong, I'm unworthy of love and belonging. Yes? Social media today, seriously, it's, 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 it's everywhere. If you go, go to scroll on Facebook today, chances are, okay, 100% of you will scroll past a profile that looks better than yours. I went to JB, the person go to Bali. I go to Bali, the person go to Paris. I go to Paris, the person go to space. It's, it's <laughs> it looks like that, right? It's social media. It's, it's out there. It's very easy to feel lousy about self. Amen? And, and this is the, 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 my observation of social media. Okay? Nobody goes like, if I have a fight with Amy later, okay, and then we are like in it, she's crying, mascara or dripping, I... If she punches me and I have a bruise, I won't go. <laughs> Hashtag couple problems. No! <laughs> we won't do that, right? We'll, we'll put that most perfect, nothing wrong, beautiful picture of ourselves on our social media profile. And you know what's the dangerous thing? Is that everyone compares with a perfect picture. Everyone compares with this thing of like, there's nothing going wrong, it's okay, there's no problems. Everyone's comparing and fighting a race with that. And this will never happen. (laughs) And we're fighting with something that that we we can't possibly win. Amen? That's that's the danger of social media. And uh, let's, let's pull up next slide. I call this the cycle of shame. It looks like this, you know. It's, it started off with, I fail at being perfect, you know, in that race of, I, I want to I, I look like that, that person on social media, you know, with no pimples, no wrinkles, kind, kind of a deal, but I have a pimple. Oh, I fail at being perfect. And then it feels like I am not enough. The arrow should go this way, I think. <laughs> feels like I am not enough. Shame. Just flip your head the other way. I, <laughs> I feel like I'm not enough. And that, that, is, that is the starting point of shame. Okay? Because I'm not enough, because I'm weak, I'm unworthy. And then you go on and you try and be more perfect to battle that feeling of shame. And then you come to a place of realizing that perfectionism, perfect, perfectionism is unattainable. And then you go back again. I fail at being perfect. And then shame. And then I try it again. And then I cannot get it. And I fail. And it's shame. And the enemy wants to keep you in that cycle. It's, it's the vicious plot of the enemy. Shame is, is to me, it's the, the strong, one of the strongest tactics of the enemy. Since the Garden of Eden, the enemy has, try, has been trying to get you to experience what he experienced. Removal from the presence. Shame removes you from the presence of God. It's true. I'm not lying. <laughs> you see, shame... Okay, when it started out, it, it was a good thing. Like, how many of you would take off all your clothes right now and run to an orchard? Maybe Daniel Charles, because he got it together. <laughs> if I had a six-pack like that. 
That's comparison. But most of you won't do that, right? Right? All of us won't do that, okay? Why, what stops us from getting there? Because of this feeling of, oh, if I do that, you know, I would feel shame. Yes? You'll feel shame. Shame started off as an anticipatory gift. Okay? It's like a prompt. It's like, don't do that. Okay? Don't do that. Be mindful of the consequence. Okay? Follow me. The enemy, okay, he doesn't want you to have that. He wants you to live in shame. And have every decision, every interaction, every connection, every relationship shame-driven or influenced and infected by shame. Okay, the example I give you is if right now, okay, you were to open the door and a tiger is waiting for you right there. Okay, a tiger ready to pounce on you. Okay, how many of you will close the door? Yes, because you fear getting eaten. Right? It's like, nobody's like, ah, tiger. No. There's a tiger, it's going to eat you, you will close the door. Why? Because you fear getting eaten. But if you never open a door for the rest of your life, then you're living in fear. How many of you caught that? Yeah? If it influences your decision, influences the way you live, you're living in it. Okay? And he wants you to live in shame. Let's look at at a verse. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 25. How many of you are following me? Yes. Encouragement for Andre. I'm on Andre. (laughs) Genesis chapter 2 verse 25. Okay, short one. It says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Okay? This is where men started. They were unashamed. They had no shame. This was God's creation. This was before the fall of man. Turn to the next verse. It's in Genesis 3, verse 6 to 11. Okay, let's, let's read this. This is the account of the fall of man. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise. See it. Comparison. Comparison. Okay? They desired to be like God. Comparison was what drove men into making the biggest mistake of human history. Okay? Comparison. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And then they sewed thick leaves together and made themselves covering. Next slide. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? Friends, church family, my question to you this morning is, Who told you you were naked? Who told you you were unworthy? Who told you that you don't belong? Who told you that your opinions don't matter? Who told you that your needs don't matter? Who told you that you're just overthinking it? Who told you that? Who told you that? Shame has a voice. Shame has a voice. It's alive. It's present. And it wants wants to speak to you and influence your decisions. Shame has a voice. Here are 
three characteristics of the voice of shame. Three common sayings that, that shame will, will tell you. Three things that shame will try and convince you of. Number one. Shame says you are your mistake. Shame says you are your mistake. If you read that verse again, Adam, in his conversation with God, didn't say, God, I ate the fruit, the apple, the cinnamon, I ate that, and I sinned against you. No. Adam said, I am naked. That's why I hid from you. He identified himself with the consequence of his sin. He identified himself with his sin. It was not, I did this. It's, I am this. Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear what I'm saying. When you sin, the enemy is going to try and tell you that you are a sinner. Not that you did something bad. It's going to try and tell you that you are bad. It's not that you made a mistake. It's you are a mistake. Different. Because if he can get into your psyche, if he can get into your mind and spirit and, and cause you to identify with something that you are not, then you're going to live that way by faith. If you believe that you are a sinner, you will sin by faith. Because you think that this is my identity, this is who I am, and, and because this is who I am, then therefore this is what I do. He tries to tell you that you are your mistake. Guilt is different. Guilt is, I made a mistake, I messed up. Shame is, I am a mistake. Shame is anything that makes you question your identity in God. It is anything that makes you feel lesser than who he says you are. It's the anti-identity entity. <laughs> Chill, right? I it. Anti-identity entity. And, and I was, I was um, uh, re-watching this. I was watching the movie Mulan. How many of you love Mulan? <laughs> I'm thinking of preaching a series called The Gospel According to Disney. Because there, there, is, there is so much truth in Disney movies. Okay? It's true. Amen. <laughs> Preacher, someone called Hakuna Matata. <laughs> That's not okay. The sad truth is, Timon and Pumbaa, they represent the world. But never mind. <laughs> I'll preach that one day. You know, the story of Mulan, we're all familiar with that, right? So it starts off with Mulan going for that, that matchmaking uh, thing with the, the lady who has a beard. And then she, she messes up the cricket, does a bunch of stuff, and then like the moustache thing. And, and then she, she, she goes on and says, Shame on you, Mulan! You will never bring your family honor! <laughs> right? Right. Far Mulan! You will never! <laughs> right? Right? How many remember that movie? You will never! And so, and so afterwards, you know, we, we understand that they went to war with the Hans. And so the, the emperor called for a male from every family to come forth. And then the, the, the father had to go to army. And so, and so uh, long story short, you know, Mulan, in an attempt to, uh, to, you know, we understand from the movie, in an attempt to save her father from the military, stole her father's armor, sword, helmet, and then went to serve the army, right? But, you know, to me, when I look at that story, I, I don't think Mulan, okay, one, I don't think that motivation was completely that. There was an underlying motivation, which is, I need to prove my worth. I need to bring honor to my family. Because this guy, 
woman person with the beard says that I will never bring my family honor. And so I need to do something to bring honor to my family. And so in the mind, it's like, okay, I need to put on this armor and disguise myself as a man and go into the army. She altered her identity. Altered her identity. Changed who she is in order to prove her worth. Hmm? Familiar? Change who you are. Do something different. Wear your hair a certain way. Dye your hair many colors. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, we all have a couple problems since we <laughs> But, but, you see, that's, that's what Mulan did. She altered identity and then she got found out. She got exposed, right? And then what happened in the end? Okay, they went, the palace, Shan Yu was there, ready to kill the emperor. And then Mulan defeats Shan Yu. As a man? No, as a woman. As who she is. And if you recall that scene, that scene was beautiful. Because Shan Yu was ready to stab Mulan with that curvy sword, with a sword that doesn't make any sense, ready to stab her, and what does she do? She takes out the fan which the women carry, grabs the sword, close it, flip it, takes the sword back, and then pins down his coat, and then he got killed by a firework. Baby, he was a firework man. But I thought it was beautiful because, because the thing that she associated her shame with, her womanhood, the thing that she, she tried to escape from became the tool that she defeated the enemy with. When she truly embraced who she was, she defeated the enemy. Alright? Follow me. And then that scene was my favorite scene when she came to the father. The father was sitting there with like the, the flower ready to drop. And then she goes to him and it's like, I brought to you the sword of Shan Yu and the medal of the emperor. The father took those things, dropped it to the ground, and he said to her, my greatest honor is having you for a daughter. <laughs> I tell you, man, affirmation is great, but when affirmation rhymes, woo, can become one-liner. My greatest honor is having you for a daughter. And, and, and see this, okay? She thought that honor equals to me doing these things, but the father said, honor, my pride, my love, my affirmation, it's not because of the things you do, but because of who you are. And the enemy is going to try to tell you to do things in order to merit God's love. But God says that you are loved, you are accepted, you belong because of who you are. Your greatest honor is that you are son and daughter of God. Next, next one. Shame as a voice. It says, you aren't worthy of love. You aren't worthy of love. You need to earn it. You need to, you need to make it happen. You know what's the, the interesting thing is that shame did not get rid of God. When Adam sinned, when Adam fell in the garden, okay, he didn't remove the existence of God from his life. God was still in the garden with Adam. Who hid, from each, who, who hid from the person? God didn't hide from Adam. Adam hid from God. Follow me? Most of the time we think when we sin, God hides from us. God like, oh, yeah, I, can't, I can't deal with that. No. 
God is there, present, and He's searching for us. He says, where are you? I've been looking, I've been searching for you. Where are you? But, but we, are, we are hiding. We think, oh, I made a mistake. I, I need to hide. I need to, to cover myself. And that's how we, 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 we react and we, we commune and we interact with God when we fail. We hide from Him. And it's based off that, that, that idea and that thinking that because I made a mistake, because I have shame, I am unworthy of love. True or not? Luke 15, oh, the, the, the prodigal son, he, he comes back and we've heard this message many times. Everyone is familiar with the story, but prodigal son rehearses his speech. He rehearses this thing like, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven. And, and, and he comes back and he, he, part of his speech is, you know what, make me a hired servant. Make me a hired servant, right? He comes back to the father and he's about to say these things. I've sinned against you, make me a hired servant. You know what shame will do to you? Shame doesn't give you a vision for reconciliation and restoration. Shame doesn't give you a vision of becoming a son again. Shame will tell you that I need to be punished, I need to be lowered a level and work my way up back into my father's house. It will tell you that. It will tell you to be someone that you are not in order to merit love. And the sick thing, the disgusting thing is that people when you get stuck in a cycle, will never break free and never become a son again. When you think like that, when you have servant thinking, it will keep you imprisoned. Truth is, if you don't receive love, others won't too. The Bible says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. The foundation of our ministry of loving the world, loving the people around us, lies in the foundation of loving yourself well. If you think that you are not worthy of love, somewhere in there, you're also saying that they are not worthy of love. Because you won't just be acquainted with your own mistakes, you'll be acquainted with the mistakes of people around you once they get close to you enough. And once they make a mistake, you say, you're not worthy of love. Not just God's love, my love. You're not worthy. Get lost. Shame says you're unworthy of love. Last one, it says, Shame says you have to fix it on your own. Adam took the fig leaves and covered himself. You know, the, the, the crazy thing is that a couple chapters before, every need he had was provided by God. Everything was provided by the word proceeded from the, that proceeded from the mouth of God. Everything, his, his sufficiency was provided by God. Every need, except women and the thing. But food... All that he needed, he depended on God. And for some reason, when he made a mistake, when he messed up, he turned to himself and tried to fix it on his own. And you know what's the messed up thing? Is that that fix, he wasn't even convinced, convinced of the fix, fix. <laughs> he wasn't even convinced of that. He, he, he did all these things, but realized it was, it was temporal. It, it didn't really solve the problem. David, when he messed up with Bathsheba, tried to fix it on his own. He tried to make Uriah seem like Uriah slept with his wife. When that didn't work, he sent Uriah to the front lines of battle, got him killed. And that didn't work when the prophet came. He tried to fix it. Didn't work. When you try and fix it on your own, it's only a temporal fix. Feels good for a moment. But you know it will not last because you're not transformed. You're not transformed. You're just covering up. 
You're just covering up. And, and the, 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 the thing that the enemy is trying to get us to think and do is that when I make a mistake, I need to disconnect myself. I need to alienate myself from people and community because of this idea that I'm unworthy of love and belonging. I need to get away from these people, get it all sorted out to merit belonging and love to go back into the community. That is why when people sin, when people fall short of expectation, they leave the church because they think, I need to get back to this place where, where I, I am strong, where I have it together to merit love and belonging. It's the ploy of the enemy. Yep. It's in connection that we become whole, not disconnection and distance. Yep. It's in connection that we become whole, not disconnection and distance. I, I read this study by a journalist named Johan Hari. Johan, he, he, he had a lot of addicts in his life. You know, they struggled through different things like alcoholism, drug addicts, and, and different issues. They had a lot of addicts, but they weren't getting free. And so he, he decided to do a research study you know, of, of this subject of addiction. Why are people stuck in addiction? Why can't they get free? Why are, is it like an endless cycle? Seemingly, it, it, they never get out of it. Kind of like shame. They, they never get out of it. And the assumption that we all have is that people are addicted to drugs because of the chemical hooks that are laced in the drugs, right? Like people are addicted to this because of the chemical hooks, because of these things that are present in drugs that keep people uh, uh, hooked to it. But the truth is, if forbid that you walk out later and get hit by a car, you will get taken to hospital and they'll give you a drug that is the purest form of heroin. And you probably won't get addicted. So you know, the, the, the reasoning is, is somewhat flawed. And they, they, they did a study on the people, the, the troops, American troops were in the Vietnam War. 20% of them, okay, they took heroin. They, they had to be uh, they had to have heroin you know, to medicate the pain, and 20% of them of the troops were, were medicated that way. And they did a study, they actually followed the 20% of the people who, who came out of, of service having taken heroin. They, they, they took them out, and they realized that once these people were assimilated back in the community, back into their jobs, back into their lifestyle, 95% of them did not take any heroin, and they didn't have to go through any rehab, they didn't go through any withdrawal. 95% of them. And so, you know, we, we, we have this understanding of chemical hooks because of a study that was done in the 20th century. Uh, it was basically a cage, and the scientists put one rat in one water bottle, he put normal water. In the other water bottle, he put uh, water that was laced with either cocaine or heroin. And 100% of the time, the rat will drink from the water that was laced with drugs, and he will overdose, and he will die. The rat the 20th century. And so th- this scientist, you know, having uh, uh, come across all these stories and having come across all these different scenarios, he said, okay, maybe that is, is, not, is, is flawed. You know, because the rat, he, he had to choose A or B. He had to choose, do this good thing, or uh, drink from this water, or drink this water that tastes a bit funny and makes it a bit, ooh, he, 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 he had to, the, the rat didn't really have a lot of options. And so what the scientist did was he constructed this whole enclosure and he called it Red Park. In Red Park, you had colorful balls, you had cheese, you had uh, slides, you had a bunch of other rat friends to play with. And so he put, he put all these rats in this thing called Red Park. And, and in Red Park, though, he, he, he put the same two bottles of water. One was normal drinking water and one was water dra- uh, laced with cocaine. 
And the research that came out from that was astonishing. It said that 100% of the rats, rats in Red Park did not prefer the drugs, the, the, the water that was laced with drugs. They, 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 they drank water and none of them overdosed from the water. And so they, they did a bunch of studies and you know, I'm, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but they came to this final conclusion and they said this, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. I'll say that again. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. When people are disconnected, when people are not plugged in, when people are alienated, they turn to their addictions. Because we're all created with needs, amen? We have a need for love, we have a need for community, and we have a need for belonging. And when I strip all those away from you, your needs don't disappear, ladies and gentlemen. Your needs will find a way to get met. And most of the time, it's in addictions. I have counseled countless of people struggling with sin, pornography. And every single person, okay, I come to the, the, the same conclusion. They struggle with the, the, the sin because of a feeling of unworthiness, insecure, I don't belong, shame. And for some reason, we think that shame is what gets people free. I shame you. I threaten you. If you don't change, I will remove your community. I will remove your worth. I shame you in order to motivate you to change, but not realizing that this thing of shame, inflicting shame on a person, is what keeps them bound in their sin. It's time that we get free of shame. Not, as, not just as individuals, but as a church. That we remove shame from our operating system. That we don't parent our children with shame. That we don't motivate each other with shame. That we don't motivate holy living by shame. It is, it is not on the heart of God at all. You know, I, I have a bunch of things to say, but you know, we're... we're we're running short of time. And I want to go through this, uh, this point because I feel this is really essential. When I was, was going through sin, when I was going through, uh, 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 I, I got up in, in a camp three years ago. Having done one year of ministry school, having been in youth ministry, having been in leadership, having prayed for a bunch of people, having seen God do amazing signs and wonders, I got up in front of my youth then three years ago and I said, for the last year, I have been battling with pornography. A leader, a person who has seen all these things, I said, I, I've been battling with pornography. Now at that point, no, I, I had some progress and I, was, I, was, I, I got free for it, from it. But I, I, I realized that, that the thing that, that usually happened was you know, I would get free from it for a while, respond to a bunch of author calls, and, and, and then I'll, I'll slip back to it. And I realized, you know what, maybe the key is in confessing. Maybe the key is in letting people in. Maybe the key is in getting out and open. Because in Psalm 32, that response that David had to the Lord, he said, I confess, I speak out. And so I, I did that. First, I did it privately with my girlfriend. Hardest thing to do. And then I stood in front of my youth. And I remember that, that I was, as I was standing in the pulpit, right in front of me was my little sister, who looked up to me, who believed in me. And, and she heard me say, well, I, I've, been, I've been struggling. 
From that day on, I was free. When you let light in, darkness cannot stand. Truth is, most people struggle with sin because of lies they're believing. I've, I've just spelled out a bunch of lies. You know, there are, there are countless of lies that the enemy will try and plague you with. He's called the accuser of the brethren. But friends, can I tell you that he may accuse you, but you have an advocate in Christ Jesus. That the way you dismantle lies is when you begin to embrace the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of who he says you are. And so what I did was, I, I wrote down a list of declarations. I wrote down a bunch of different things. That, that I am incredible. I am a level 10 leader. I am holy. I am free. I belong to Jesus. And I wrote a bunch of these things down. And I, I took one of those telecounters, one of those things where ushers would count people with. And, and I, I did a thousand of them a week. Because I understood that, that the only way I can dismantle these lies is, is, is if I begin to embrace truth. So I declare, I declare, I declare, and I war against those lies. Friends, the enemy will lie to you. He's the father of lies. He will convince you of something you are not. He will tell you that your mistakes, your sin is permanent and that you can never change. And today, this morning, we're going to do two things. We're going to let light in to our dark places. We're going to Use truth to dismantle lies. Can we all stand? You know, Luke 22, we hear the account of Peter. Peter, okay, he denied Jesus. Okay, how many of you are familiar with the story? Yes? Okay, what did Jesus say? Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you will deny me three times before the... Rooster crows. Yes? Rooster crows. Okay? And so Peter, you know, uh, we read down the verse when, when, when he denied Jesus for a third time, the rooster crowed, and then Peter realized his sin against the Lord, and then he wept bitterly. And, and you know, the beautiful thing is that Jesus restored him, Jesus made him whole, Jesus made him new again. Amen? Yep. How many of you know that in that day they did not have alarm clocks? They did not have alarm clocks. How did they wake up every morning? The rooster, the rooster would crow. Every morning, Peter was confronted with that rooster. Peter was confronted with the very image, with the very thing that will remind him of his betrayal, of his denial of the Messiah. Every morning, Peter was convinced, uh, Peter was confronted with that thing. Every morning, Peter was confronted with that. Peter, every morning, had to break off shame, had to break off the lies, had to break off these thoughts of, you are not worthy, you don't belong. What? You call yourself the rock? What? You call yourself the leader of the church? But you denied him. Every morning, Peter had to break it off. Shake it off. Every morning. And he did that by embracing truth. Here are five professions of a shameless person. If you can say these five things, I believe shame will fall off you. If you can say these five things, I believe that, that the truth of these five statements will dismantle the lies that you're believing. Here's number one. It says, I have needs and I am okay with it. Say that with me. I have needs and I am okay with it. Sounds like AA. But let's, let's have the, the next, next one. It says, I can't do it on my own. I need help. Say that with me. I can't do it on my own. 
I need help. I need people to come alongside me. I need people to help me. I need people to journey with me. Third statement, it says this. My past mistakes will not determine my future. Say that with me. My past mistakes will not determine my future. How many of you actually believe that? It's a common saying. This is what we always say. But do you really believe that no matter how messed up you are now, it will not determine your destiny? Do you really believe that? My past mistakes will not determine my future. Next one. It says this. I am accepted, loved, and worthy of belonging. This is the kicker. Just as I am. Say that with me. I am accepted, loved, and worthy of belonging. Just as I am. I as a leader of church say to you that I love you not by what you do, but by who you are. Come on. Last one. It says, I am capable of change. Say that with me. I am capable of change. Your sin, your shame, your mistakes are not who you are. They are not permanent. They will not stay there. They will not remain because Jesus is the only thing that will remain. And when we hold on to Jesus as the author, as the perfecter of our faith, shame falls off. Sin falls off. Come on. We are capable of change because of Christ. Jesus, come on, I'm preaching. Come on. It's 12, 12. 12, 12. The number of divine order. 12 is the number of order. God is going to restore order in some of your lives this morning. So we're going to sing a song. And after this, this is what I want you to do. I want you to pair up with the person on your right or on your left. And I want you to confess a need. Confess a need, something that you need help with something that you need prayer for. Pray together, pair up, get vulnerable, get light in there, and together we'll see change, together we'll see transformation, and together we'll become an unstoppable church. God bless you.